0: going into the different funnels of how a particular customer gets to that feature or capability, I would dare say that conversation or understanding your customer input and not necessarily giving them the options of input might be a little bit faster. And that's where I think conversational AI will play a huge game on.
1: Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. Hi, everyone. Super excited to have our next guest, Miguel Navarro. Miguel is currently the SVP Business Tech Exec, focusing on building out conversational AI enterprise delivery at KeyBank. He also has a wide range of experience building and growing mobile apps, voice platforms, chatbots, digital assistants, and more. So excited to hear about your growth story, Miguel. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. How's everything? Things are good. Things are good.
1: It's finally a cooler day here. I'm in Palo Alto today, so oh, nice. I'm kind of excited for that. So let's start with where you are now. I know you just started at KeyBank no long ago. Tell us a bit about KeyBank.
0: What is KeyBank and what's your role there? So again, thank you for having me. So I work for KeyBank as their business tech executive within conversational AI external delivery. So what that means, right, is it's essentially working within the hub of conversational AI, but really more focusing about the externalization of features of everything conversational AI, meaning bots, those customer facing or customer, those customer interfaces, because again, it's interface or user interface is very funny now because sometimes it could be within four corners of a screen and sometimes it could just be voice. So without going further into it, essentially, I manage the external delivery of everything conversational AI for KeyBank.
1: And what is KeyBank? Where are you guys based? For the listeners who haven't heard of it.
0: Oh, yeah. So KeyBank is a regional bank that is based in Cleveland, Ohio. So if you're looking at the footprint of a lot of regional banks, typically some of them are East Coast only, sometimes they're Midwest only. So KeyBank is actually very spread out within the United States, which is actually one of the reasons why I did want to pursue this opportunity because It's not really, I do think, and kind of going into who Miguel is, right? (laughs) (laughs) I really look and I really love regional banks because they're not quite the trillionaire banks like the JPMorgan Chase is the Bank of America. But then also there's this change that's happening. And I think we've seen that over COVID where there's a whole, like everything where we were supposed to be in digital, all of a sudden got fast forwarded. So To me, it's very interesting where the regional bank space is going to be and where that will fit in within the ecosystem, especially when all of a sudden digital seems to be the main platform that people are going for. Now, with that being a very broad ecosystem, I really do think that there's an opportunity here for regional banks to not necessarily win the entire broadness of banking, but rather certain pillars. And those pillars are the ones where, again, at this specific level, looking into conversational AI and how we can be best—not just in banking, but best in class.
1: So let's talk about that. The conversational AI. How do you think that will be a differentiator for regional banks? What are your thoughts and perspectives or developments that you see in that area, and how you're going to like kind of
0: you're thinking about the future of that? Yeah, and again, this might be a little combination of what I do in key and some things that I don't do in key. But the way I kind of look at it is if you look at consumer input. So if I'm asking you, how can I help you? If I only know, let's say, verbs, or I only know nouns, or I only can limit you to what I can show you, and that's literally your basic user interface today or complicated user interfaces today that you can see through mobile app, web, etc you're kind of fit into that four corners of your screen. Now, conversational AI is kind of where it really complicates things because now you can stay within the four corners of the screen or somewhat without the four corners of the screen. Because if you think about every conversation that we take, you can go in so many different places. I think my wife laughs at me because I take things into different tangents all the time. But the one thing that I know is that when you are trying to help a customer, or a client, and you are only showing buttons and places for them to go, you're essentially showing the limitations of what you can do. Now, you can argue and say, yes, but we have 15 different pages of so many different functionalities and features. The one thing I will challenge you is how many of those features are actually very accessible to your clients and customers, wherein, within a conversation... If you think about funnel building, etc., now we're going into my little marketing game. If we're going into the different funnels of how a particular customer gets to that feature or capability, I would dare say that conversation or understanding your customer input and not necessarily giving them the options of input might be a little bit faster. And that's where I think conversational AI will play a huge game on.
1: That's very cool. Very, very interesting. What are, I think, as you think about companies who are trying to introduce this, obviously in banking, but way outside the banking, this can be something that can help anyone who has a customer service team. What do you think are the biggest challenges and how should people approach this?
0: Well, I would say when it comes to, again, there's the different layers to this, right? So the one piece that I would say is, I think the main thing is platform. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to conversational AI or whatever it is that you do within the digital space, mobile app, website, whatever interface you would do, like a wearable or anything like that, you kind of have to look at, okay, how mature are your clients right within that space? Or is that the normal pathway? Or is this something where, oh, there's people don't necessarily use digital as the first point of entry or understanding based off your customers and to kind of put it simply if you look at the apple model you can see that they typically use a lot of their digital for servicing and for sales and then when it comes to deeper level that's when the branches or their stores or their little locations that's where that becomes useful so when you're looking at conversational ai i don't necessarily think that oh. That is something built within the construct of a screen of a phone or only really going into um, necessarily, how would I put this, doesn't always have to live within the digital space. Yes, you're using a lot of digital elements, but I do believe that eventually when this is like, I'm talking way in the future here, I'm not talking about any plans at all, like any company here, but getting to a get like point of, understanding tone, intent, or expression of a consumer that if let's say I were in a branch or at a store, let's say I'm at the Apple store and I'm talking to someone and let's say through a proper disclaimer, we're telling people, oh, a lot of things are being recorded because we're in like year 2046 where people are normalized now with things being recorded. But then let's say in that specific state, we're talking and let's say I'm telling you, I'm really having a hard time with my phone. And I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z. And on the corner side of your screen, or even at this point, you have have like AR goggles now at this point and everything's being thrown at you. But anyway, through your display, you pretty much get a prompt or tips or something like that, where it tells you, okay, to deal with someone who is a little bit worried, sounds like this is the first time they're using their phone, sounds like X, Y, and Z, Right? We create a different experience for that specific person based off of what you're hearing and what that client is feeling through that conversational AI state. And again, just like what I said, it sounds very futuristic, sounds very far fetched. But today is when we build those building blocks. So if you're thinking about as a business today, where you should be when you're thinking about oh chatbots and the conversational state of things i would say one you'd want to start grabbing as many smart inputs that you can get not just only say oh or we'll grab only things that are happening in digital no i think you should contextualize every single conversation that's happening within your brand and try to figure out okay what are the data points what can you do what are the best person today right? The best person today who handles every single customer service call that you're doing, how do you digitize that person? So it's almost like the person's tone when they're talking back to you. How do you digitize that? So one of the things that I would kind of give or advise brands that talk to me is really one, I think the data of what it is that you're capturing. You need to be able to drill down into so many different attributes. It's not just a yes, no, because life never is, right? It's not, Life's not and There's so many different levels in it. So you need to be able to detect those pieces and at least be able to, again, when it comes to AI or machine learning, training becomes very important. You need to really get to that granularity. So I would say really take in as much data as you can and get as granular as you can get. So when you're training, you're not getting a whole bunch of false positives or false negatives, right? At that point. But then also at the same time, really, really, really prioritize feedback. Because when customers do feedback, I mean, there's other companies out there, right? That kind of you have to pay for you to be able to get a customer feedback. There's lots of ways of doing it within the different platforms and within the mobile app and being able to utilize that feedback and then take folks into different places and not to add a little product item here, but let's see with branch, let's talk about a little bit of the deep linking and the smart QR functionality of it, right? With smarter insights within when you are launching that QR code. And obviously we know the granularity of where branch can go when you're doing deep linking. Being able to grab all that data that you are getting on that scan to from a warehouse that you already know from all those different inputs that you're getting, and maybe even getting contextually or whether what that person is feeling when they're writing something a certain way. You can grab that through NLU and be able to do NLG, which is natural language generation of what the response should be based off of the formulated instance that has happened in that specific point of time. But anyway, Again, it went a little too deep there. I do apologize. No, I love it. I love it.
1: No, don't apologize. It's incredibly cool. So you've done a bunch of this. You were at TD Bank before for a while. Are there any features or products that you are very proud of that you think did extremely well in improving the way you interacted with customers, retention, satisfaction, etc.?
0: So there was actually one project where we did use branch. And again, this is back in my TD days. We used branch IO for essentially doing, initially the use case was, oh, we just need to deep link. But then again, I'm the type of person like keep scratching on that scab, right? And then see how deep this goes. So one of the things that we ended up doing was we created a pilot of a virtual reality kit and we call that the TD virtual reality kit. right? I love <laughs> But anyway, so within that kit, what we actually wanted to do was kind of create a variance of a customer going through that typical experience. And then another, whether they enroll in stores, in our stores or branches, right? They enroll on digital that we would send them a packet that then becomes a virtual reality headset that you then put in and then you start exploring and we gamified a whole bunch of games. So, Let's say send money. If we wanted to teach someone how to send one currency from one phone to another, so we gave them a game where it's almost like this virtual reality pong. So there's this phone scrolling and then you're hitting it with coins. So you're essentially trying to get there, sending that one device, that currency that's coming from your phone, which is essentially send money. After the game, you get a video of them, hey, here are the different use cases of using Send Money. It's a 30 second video, but very elaborately done, or done elaborately, I mean. And then at the very last bit, and this is where Branch IO comes in, we ask them, do you want to enroll or not? So again, now you're thinking about the emotional state of a person, right? You're talking about a person who just had a great time playing a game. And then all of a sudden, now we're going to feed that person information of this is how you use Send Money. So think about the traditional path of someone going up to you and saying, "Hey, do you want to sign up for Zell?" Right? So the idea there is you're just like, "No, I don't even know what that is." So no, my answer is going to be no. It's the same thing as when you walk into, let's say, your favorite retail store and as soon as you walk in, someone tells you, "Hey, do you need help?" And you're like, "No, I just got here." So it's not necessarily helpful. So the one piece that happens is it's always good to be able to wait until someone's looking through jeans and trying to look for their size. So instead of asking them a general question that you can ask anyone, hey, would you like help? You go in and then you essentially tell them, hey, do you need to look for a particular size? Are you looking for a particular color? And that way, it's a little bit more contextualized. So that's kind of what we did with the virtual reality kit is after we gave them that information, we went ahead and asked them when they're emotionally heightened, they're having fun and just received all that great information about the product in a very special way, then we ask them, hey, would you like to enroll? And without going into too much specifics, because I can't really deliver specific numbers, but let's just say that the enrollment or the uptick in enrollment were beyond our targets. That's a really great
1: story and a great example. How about the flip side? Sometimes we learn the most from our mistakes or things that we try to do and they don't end up going that well. Any examples of something that you thought was going to kill it? And then you did Oh, And what would maybe your lessons
0: from that? Oh yeah, no, there's tons of lessons on that end, right? I think I've had way more failures than I've had successes, even though I do love talking about my successes because it makes me look successful. So there was this project. I'm not going to brand it. I'm not going to name it, but I'll essentially describe what it is because I can't necessarily go into too much detail. But Yeah, no worries. So we had this functionality where when a person... so essentially what it is, it's just like it's creating an express line for the person to get ahead. So if they use a particular feature on the mobile app, it would then create a flag for them to go ahead of the queue when they would call the contact center. So that particular item, which again, like sounds like a terrific idea, especially when you're trying to get folks to utilize the item, you know, didn't work quite well only because what ended up happening was the cost of how much that feature was uh, initially, and I'll go back into this, but initially at first glance, after a while of using it, the and the cost of the service, etc., looked like it was always more than the benefit. So that being said, it just looked horrible because actually more and more people started using it because there's a little bit of marketing that went behind it. So this particular product at first glance looked like it's costing more than giving us benefits. So at that point in time, when we had like, you know, what we can see and what we know at that point, it looked like a horrible project. And when it launched, it just became more and more horrible as more folks started using it. And it was definitely one of those things where I definitely could have either, you know, just like, you know, shelved it and just said, oh, you know what, like, uh, put, uh, looked at it as a mistake and then looked at it as, oh, let's uh, take this opportunity to blame people, to save my own skin, that type of thing. No, I got, none of that happened. One of the things that we did was we looked at this quote-unquote mistake and kind of really created a lot of transparency into it and through the organization to then show people, hey, this is why it's important to look at case A, case B, case C, and then really go through a bunch of user testing, look at what the cost would potentially be, really go through those estimates. And it was just really that time when you can plan as much as he can, but it's something that Mike Tyson says, right? Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. So... At that point, I was definitely punched in the face. Number two, again, just like what I said, I could have taken the opportunity to save my own skin and kind of blame other people. I didn't, again, like I owned up to it. I told everyone that was my strategic vision. That was, I was the one driving it. It's 100% my fault. And a lot of the team and my teammates were coming to my rescue and saying, no, 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 that's not only your fault. It's also our fault, which kind of in this mistake, we were able to actually unify together because we had a common scar, let's call that. But then also prior to this, we had this celebratory thing that I used to do. So I'd take my team out drinking. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Notting Hill. I have. Where there's that brownie, the last brownie, right? And it gets awarded to the person who can say the sorriest story, right? So quarterly, what we would do is like, I'd put a prize, a grand prize in the middle of the table. And everyone would try to really sell their failure for the suckiest failure in the world. Obviously, I won that round. <laughs> but again, we celebrated it as a team. And it was a real moment. Because, and this is like one thing too that I would say, every single company, every single company tries to have that amazing culture. But only few, right? if any, only few really practice it. Meaning... How many times have we worked in a place where they say, oh, it's always good to make mistakes, learn. That's what we do here. We test and learn, test and learn. Boom, when that learning opportunity actually happens, all of a sudden, everyone's pointing fingers. All of a sudden, like, it's not what was said. It's not what's being said. And the actions are very night and day compared to what is being said throughout the company, which is kind of BS. A lot of companies do that. So it definitely was an opportunity for me as a leader to really show exercise, right? That thing that I keep talking about that, hey, you know what, when there is a mistake, whether it's someone else's, whether it's mine, doesn't matter. Let's learn from it. Let's celebrate. And you know what, if we have to be kind of blacklisted from the club for two years or something like that, then hey, we're blacklisted together. We're going to throw another party somewhere else. Club doesn't matter. So that's the mentality that I was telling the team. Now, I was mentioning earlier, that was the initial piece of it. Two years later, right, we were going through it again. And all of a sudden, through smarter data now and through, you know, again, we've partnered with different third parties to be able to grab real-time events, real-time data, and also at the same time, figure out different actionability plans which in this case branch I o. And so there's different partners, right? But I love the shout-outs. <laughs> I know. There's different partners that we kind of used here to get smarter data. And when we got that smarter data, that's actually when everything was revealed. Everything was working fine. We just weren't looking at the right places and the right KPIs. So when we started putting in those KPIs and we started putting in all the different data points that we weren't looking at. All of a sudden, this project that we did, that was a failure for two years. It was a failure for two years. And it was the laughing stock, right? At least in this org that it was like working out because it's almost like, oh, why do that? Like if it's gonna cost us more. No, actually we should stop using that. We should, you know, so every single person in the org is just like, no, 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 let's deter people from using that functionality to now, no, actually, you know what? Let's go gang up on it because this is a fantastic opportunity. So anyway. Long story short, failure can be something successful, depending on how you act in it at the moment, because that's how you're getting defined. A person who is patient isn't defined as patient when, oh, everything's like rainbows and dandelions. No, it's when everything's stormy, when everything's wet, when everything's cold, and and you seem like you're alone, and you see that group of people still standing there when everyone else left. That's what defines patience. That's the thing. It's like every day we write our story and we define who we are. Again, who we are in character is who we are in practice. That's how it should be, right? So if you are a company, and if you're saying, hey, test and learn, test and learn, then that should also be what it is in practice. So one of the things that, again, that was a success in this failure was that one, my team and I were just able to kind of accept it, laugh at the things that we can laugh at, and then really, truly just become better. Number two, I think everyone within a position was able to show and prove to the rest of the crew that this is a truly test and learn environment. And then number three, we didn't give up. Anytime there was new data, new opportunity coming in, we didn't declare the project that we just figured, oh, we can continue improving. And then it turned out that we weren't taking on certain KPIs or certain benefits from before, which then we actually had to recalculate everything. And it put us way over the top when it came to benefits. But anyway, that was a very, very long-winded failure story.
1: Wow. I love it. Thanks for sharing. It was very vulnerable and definitely learned a lot from it. I'm going to do the brownie thing, I think, with my team because I think it's such a great exercise. So I'm taking that for my next offside. How cool. I love it. You've had like really cool experiences and you have, you're working on some really cool, almost cutting-edge stuff. How did you get to where you are? I know you like actually started your own company at some point. Tell us a bit about the story of how you got into working in digital conversational voice today.
0: Yeah, so I honestly have just been really that geeky kid growing up. So I started programming when I was in the sixth grade. I started teaching high school programming when I was in the seventh grade. And I was part of those substitute teacher program type things when I was in high school, and I would teach high school programming to folks during those programs. But the one piece too that I would say is I've always just really liked solving puzzles. And that's how I looked at programming. There was a problem to be solved. And this was the solution. This being like whatever it is that I'm building. So To me, it just almost felt like solving puzzles every day. Every single function was just an item that I needed to solve. And that function I can reuse to continue solving different problems of the same scale, yada, yada, yada. So 2008 happened. And 2008, I had my first iPhone, right? Again, I was one of the early adopters of iPhone. Everyone looked at it as a very hyped-up iPod ipod with a screen that can call and there's not really much features yet at this point we weren't even 3g yet so it's just like the, when you would load up pages on the internet it, it was slow it's not a mobile or there's no none of that it was just web and you just downloaded the websites on the browser that came with your iphone and just what i said 2008 and i remember this because i was in my physics two class. And just listening through the lectures while I have my earphone on, disrespecting my professor. And ever Again, definitely there's any kids or college kids <laughs> listening to this, don't disrespect people. At least use AirPods and grow your hair so you can cover it. The one piece that I would say is I was listening to Steve Jobs do that announcement. Again, I was talking about things that he would do for the iPhone next. And then he mentioned, oh, he's allowing third-party developers to develop their phone, right? Now, this takes me back to my Nokia 5110. That was my first Nokia phone. And I remember playing Snake. And I remember, and again, when I was a kid too, one of the things I always think, I always think of is, okay, how do I make money out of this? So that's always the question that I always ask myself. So I'm thinking in my head, okay, the game Snake. If I sold that to a million people for a buck, that would essentially make me a millionaire. Yeah. And in the Philippines alone, I'm thinking in my head there's a ton of people that played snake. Now, if I if snake right was that game, and I created like, oh, a game of snake that's two players or whatever, I'm thinking in my head, wait a second, now we're talking because then now I'm competing against a game within a platform that couldn't have any competition before. So I'm just thinking in my head, oh my God, this is huge. So again, 13 seconds later, after hearing this, I just stand up and left my class. So I was just like, I knew that what I needed to do was learn mobile development. I didn't know how to do it, but I knew I had to do it. But also, number two, I knew that everyone was at the starting line. So I knew that whatever effort I put in now is actually going to be... It's one of those things that I know that's going to be useful because... It's just, I know that everyone's at the starting line and any gain, any leads that I gain, right, are actually meaningful. Because just like what I said, everyone's at the starting line. Yeah, so I hid myself from the world, essentially just tried to learn Objective-C at the time. And really tried to get into mobile development. And then around 2010, that was when, again, I started really getting comfortable. Because again, I was self-taught and you know Objective-C at that time. Even just at this point in time, I wasn't a Mac user. So even just learning the Mac operating system, what it can do, etc. Those are the other things that I had to deal with. But around 2010 was when I got really comfortable and started getting little side gigs of like, oh, making mobile apps here and there for small businesses. They're really small businesses like boutique stores, etc. Because, oh, having a mobile app was pretty cool. And then... Around 2012, that's when I started my company and make my entertainment, which again, I, at that point, I really just thought, oh, I'm going to make games. I'm going to make a ton of games, which again, like this company now is just dormant because I haven't necessarily done anything else with this. But the one thing that was pretty cool about it was, again, I learned the ins and outs, right, of running a business of an end to end mobile shop. And I learned how to be a product manager. I knew how to be the marketing guy. I knew how to be the CEO. And again, there's like I was running eight, nine developers. Eight developers, one project manager. And that was kind of my shop. And we went to different businesses. And eventually, we landed a few good ones. One, we created an app that got bought out by another company. And they shelved it because we were competing. But that was pretty cool. And then the other item too was being able to actually land medium-sized companies as clients. And that gave us a lot of cash flow that we needed at that time. And again, taught me kind of how really at the enterprise level, really apply and develop and understand, okay, if you're starting a mobile app, here are the things to look out for immediately rather than learning it two years, three years down the road, when it's a lot harder to scale up because you foundationally, you didn't build it correctly.
1: Very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. What a cool story. And I think this idea of seeing the potential in this, in a new platform, it's extremely cool. Any platforms, any emerging platforms you're excited about right now that you think others? Oh, I mean, I've always been excited
0: about, you know, again, outside of conversational AI voice, those are the odds I'm working on that right now. But the one thing that's always exciting for me is augmented reality. I think yeah, virtual reality and augmented reality is kind of at that place now where we've gone on the other side of the curve hype. I mean the hype curve. So anyway, the one piece that I would say, especially when it comes to augmented reality, is I do think that there's plenty use cases, just the same as this thing I tell folks to is like I don't know if you remember pocket PCs, Palm Pilots, etc. I do. Yeah, those were smartphones. Yeah, they were. It's just that there weren't connectivity yet. There wasn't the internet, like the internet that we have today. The internet that we have today is absolutely ridiculous from the 56k or the ever so fast 128k modem that we had like a long time ago, right? Yeah, it's incredible. So the thing that I keep telling folks is back in the day, like the Palm Pilots and Pocket PCs and all of that, if it had the internet that we have today, do you think that those things would boom in popularity or, you know, boom in usage, probably will, but we would never know now. I mean, the ones that we know now, obviously, is one the smartphones. But it's the same thing with augmented reality. I do feel that maybe when it came out, or at least when things were coming out a few years ago, might be a little too early for consumers to truly understand and comprehend what it is. But then now you have LiDAR, you have certain functionalities on the iPhone that AR companies can now piggyback on, but then also at the same time, internet's a lot faster. So then now you can download videos in seconds, wherein before it would take minutes, et cetera. So that being said, with data running so much faster now and devices are running so much faster when you have a phone that's faster than your PC at home, that consumes internet faster than your broadband internet at home. I mean, if you think about it, that's kind of like, I do think that there are things that's going to start growing on that end and then eventually we combine with everything else that i'm truly obsessed about or like web3 stuff like nfts like a metaverse etc you combine all of that together then all of a sudden things make sense and i really do think that we're at the beginning stages of those that yeah i really do think that we're going to see history i think this might be one of those times where within the 40 year span we're going to see two platforms come out and it's way bigger than what we thought because Again, in the web, right, and desktop computers were there for a very long time. And then all of a sudden in 2019, we were saying, oh my God, there's now more smartphone usage than web. Eventually, a lot of those things are going to start crisscrossing, especially when it comes to new technology. And I do believe that AR and those glasses, et cetera or any other interface that they have of AR will become more than what they thought of.
1: That's very cool. I love it. I love it. And I also agree in it. I may invest in one or two companies in the AR space. and see where that goes. But I'm very bullish. I actually thought it would move faster than
0: they have, but... Oh, yeah. No. Oh, me too. Absolutely.
1: So we'll see. But I understand how hard, especially AR, I understand how hard it is to actually have proper AR glasses, but they're coming. I know they're coming. Oh, yes. Well, Miguel, this was awesome. I feel like we got to know you quite well. We usually end with three more fun lighting round questions. So let's go into that. Let's do it. If you had to delete all the apps and you could only keep one
0: app on your phone, what would you keep? Oh, well, easy. It's just going to be the Photos app. I just need to be able to see my son Aiden, watch his videos. That's nice. all that matters to me right now.
1: I love it. If you had an app to talk to one animal or one type of animal, what would you pick?
0: Oh, definitely dog. I already try and talk to my dog Harlow. And so I have two dogs, Sky and Harlow. Sky, you know, is really more like my wife. So they're both attached. Harlow's like me. And yeah, no, I mean, right now, if I can build an app that I can talk to Harlow, oh, I'd absolutely quit everything that I'm doing right now and repeat 2008, where I just go down a hole and just like try to build this app. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, if we could build an app like that, I'm pretty sure we would become billionaires. I'm just saying.
0: Oh, it sounds like I've got my first investor.
1: <laughs> and lastly, what's the most unlikely app on your phone?
0: Ooh, unlikely app on my phone. That's really tough. I would say unlikely, but I guess not really. I was going to say like a whole bunch of the kids' apps. But again, I have a son. I would say a whole bunch of the gambling stuff. I have... Essentially fanDuel, DraftKings and my favorite Bet three six five app. But again, that's one of those things where my friends and family know I gamble a lot. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to like leave you hanging here because No worries. Again, yeah, I actually don't know. That's a very good question. Well the kids apps are good. Any Well, what's yours? Mine?
1: Yeah. Oh man, no one asked me that.
0: Let's see. Yeah, I'm gonna go through my phone right now and kinda look through mm-hmm. like what else is like the app that i use i like this
1: app called mr chili i don't live in sf but i am moving to sf but so it's unlikely because people are like why would you have the sf app but it shows the temperature and all the different microclimates in san francisco oh that's really cool and i think it's like kind of cool and maybe not as unlikely if you know that i'm moving but if you didn't know that i'm moving (laughs) you'd be like hmm and I check it a lot, actually.
0: Oh, that's funny.
1: I use it a lot to decide where to buy a house. So is, So What's the warmest area Oh,
0: that's actually really smart. Yeah, I would say for me, now that I'm looking at my apps, uh, probably I would say I have this one app called Chlorox Pool. So essentially what it is, is it's like to test the water and like, Oh, cool. Pool. Yeah. And you know, now I don't use it as much because I know what to do with the pool. But if folks who knew me and knows everything that I know like the pool and they saw that in my app they're like huh, why do you have that when you already know so much about pools
1: yeah <laughs> cool yeah that's awesome wow what an, an interesting one if I ever go to Airbnbs <laughs> with pools I'll check it out
0: oh yeah no, the funniest thing too is like my wife and I were so we just recently purchased a home in Orlando and we actually have that open right now it's so an Airbnb but when we were looking we were seeing a whole bunch of homes with, with pools. And the real estate agent would ask my wife, like, hey, aren't you worried that you wouldn't know what to do with the pool? She's like, oh, anything pool, my husband will take care
1: of. Nice. I love it. You're the pool guy.
0: Cool. Yeah,
1: the pool guy. <laughs> well, with that, Miguel, thank you for having me to the show. Thanks for being so vulnerable, sharing some really awesome experiences and stories and advice. It was wonderful
0: having you. Oh, thanks so much again for having me. I enjoyed this a lot. And yeah, hopefully we get to do this again.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.